Welcome to the Anti-Racist Film Club podcast, a production of The Commons, the online faith space created by the South Sound United Methodist Co-op. But for the purposes of this podcast, we're a bunch of people excited to watch movies and grow together through the lens of anti-racism. I'm your host, Lauren Fontanilla, and today I'm joined by Pastor Kellen Corliss from Tumwater UMC. How are you today, Pastor Kellen? Hey, I'm doing well. It's, um... It's a, it feels like the first fall day, which I guess is fitting. I think it's tomorrow. No, it is the, oh, it is today. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> but if, yeah, it feels like fall in the air. Yes. It's getting a little bit cooler. I can start wearing jackets to work in the morning now, which is my preferred uh, temperatures. Yep. Sweater weather time. I'm here for it. In terms of movies, have you started watching any Halloween type stuff yet besides the movie that we watched for today? Oh, um, I'm not quite there yet, but I'm actually probably going to rewatch Wednesday Adams from mm, Netflix. Mm-hmm. I watched it last year out of season and um, I'm looking forward to getting back into the spooky season. Maybe watch that with some family members. Wednesday's like my preferred level of like spooky, kind of like creepy, but not outright scary. <laughs> Unlike today's film discussion, which was on the horror movie Us, which is definitely way out of my wheelhouse. Are you a big horror person? You know, I think I have to say that I am. I know that some other pastors in the co-op who have been on the podcast before have also been big horror fans. Mm-hmm. And so... I have to say yes. I, I should disclaimer that so that I don't have anyone in the comments or coming to the film club expecting that I've seen every horror film. I probably have some big holes in like my horror classics, <laughs> but yeah, I have enjoyed uh, a good fright there and here. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I am completely the other way. I've maybe seen a handful of uh, horror films and a few more thrillers, but otherwise I do not enjoy being scared. <laughs> Yeah, well, I can commend your bravery for watching the movie, for uh, doing the due diligence here, and it's going to be cool to have you as a conversation partner in this, because we might come to horror a little bit differently. I mean, I should assume that we're going to come to horror a little bit differently than two horror fanatics like getting at it. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed this film apart from how nervous it made me to watch it. I can recognize it's a very well-crafted movie. So I am also excited to discuss it with you. Uh, So the movie that we watched for this month's October Antaresis Film Club discussion is the movie Us, which came out in 2019. And it's sort of like the follow-up to Get Out, which was Jordan Peele's first breakout directorial hit. It's not a sequel, It was the main marketing draw is like from the mind of Jordan Peele. He's kind of an auteur director, too. So that's why I think people think of the movies so similarly. Totally. Even though they're not really alike at all. Yeah, no, his sophomore film, right? So like second foray into film. And a lot of us will know Jordan Peele from the Key and Peele show. Mm -hmm. A great comedian, a hilarious writer. And then he just like back to back horror masterpiece. I mean, masterpiece might be strong, but like just like it's really solid entry into horror, giving black representation in the horror genre as well, which is just highly underrepresented in the genre. I would imagine that that's one of the reasons it was selected for the club. I mean, I guess I don't know the behind the scenes, how the pastors end up picking the films, but what were some of the considerations that went into talking about this one? Yeah, definitely that piece of like representation in this genre. Also, 
we draw from the films that we know, right? It's hard to, when you're in a circle of brainstorming people, to come up with a bunch of films if you haven't seen them. And sometimes we've made those leaps. I think that Alaskan Nets from our last selection was one that none of us had seen, but mm-hmm. all, all of us had had thoughts about. And I remember listening back last month to your conversation with Pastor Denise, like there were some there was some conflict there in <laughs> finding the like an anti-racist, a faith-based conversation within that film, which I think is really good. So we actually had decided this before, so we couldn't have anticipated that. But I had seen Us twice before reviewing it again for this podcast. And so while it wasn't as overt in its handling of anti-racist or racist tropes and themes in media, there is a lot happening within this movie and the more that I started to look for it the more that I was just amazed at just how wide open um, a conversation could be had from us definitely I am looking forward to it it's um it's good stuff so let's crack into it (laughs) okay I'll read a brief synopsis of the film and then we can really dig into the the dense material is what I would call it Mm, dense Us is a horror film written and directed by Jordan Peele. It stars Lupita Nyong'o, Winston Duke, Shahadi Wright-Joseph, and Evan Alex as the Wilson family and their sinister doppelgangers. Taking her family on a vacation to Santa Cruz, Adelaide Wilson is reminded of an emotional trauma she endured in her own childhood trip to this very same beach. And one night into their stay, the Wilsons become the victims of a terrifying home invasion. What makes it so terrifying? Their attackers wear matching red jumpsuits, carry deadly golden scissors, and oh yeah, look exactly like them. (laughs) They call themselves The Tethered. Facing their murderous doubles, the Wilsons' fight for survival brings up old traumas for Adelaide, sets the scene for chilling twists, and reminds us, the audience, that the privileges we take for granted often come at the expense of someone else. Oh my goodness. You named it right there, Lauren. This um, <laughs> this like main motif and idea. Honestly, my first couple watches, I didn't necessarily think were at the core of the story, and I think this is kind of the mark of great writing when you can realize how many layers a film can go into. Mm -hmm. And like looking back at some interviews of Jordan Peele, kind of like the first big overarching theme that Peele raises about this film is like, what are the consequences of people who have privilege? Mm -hmm. Right out the gate, you have the entire movie to look back at with that lens of the privileged and the underprivileged and like the relationship that they have to one another. And then the title starts to make sense. Uh, Us. (laughs) Yeah. So for maybe those who haven't seen the film yet or are planning to, the, the idea of like a society that exists above literally on the surface world and then there's a secret society that consists of all of the tethered doppelgangers who live in the abandoned tunnels underground. They were like part of a government experiment and then they were abandoned because it didn't really work and now there's these like uh, the idea of like mole people that's a conspiracy theory in real life but they're all just milling about everyone on earth has a double version of themselves and they're dark and evil. They exist exist elsewhere they they are like the them and we are the us but are they really that's kind of the line that the movie seeks to blur a bit yeah and we get that from the absolute beginning of the film this quote that comes up on the screen about the like hundreds of thousands of miles of tunnels and caves that 
are just unused and we don't know why they're being used. And throughout the film, it starts to reveal itself, especially in kind of that third act of understanding the difference between the above people, the us, and the below people, the tethered, who all have relationships between one another. And while the people on the surface are living this life of, well, privilege, we could say, but really just they're living the lives that we all expect to live or the American dream. We could even say, you know, mm-hmm. they're going to the carnival. They're having their beach days. They're trying to keep up with the Joneses and have their boats and their generators and all these kind of things, their vacation homes. Whereas we see like the life for those underneath the tethered is just like a mirror of that, but it's not quite a full mirror. Like, Oh, we're getting to experience the same stuff too. No, they pretend. Yeah. They're made to go through the motions of life, but everything is just more dull. Or horrifying. Like, (laughs) it's like, oh, I'm eating these strawberries while my double is eating a live rabbit. Yes, exactly. And (laughs) and that's one of the fun images in this film. And fun for me, maybe not for you, Lauren, is like (laughs) this idea that whatever your double is eating on the surface, you are left to eat raw rabbits, which are this beautiful image of the experimented upon. And so we're then left with this broader reflection on the way that our government throughout history has subjected people, certain people and people groups to being test people or putting them into certain communities in order to kill their culture or make them uh, assimilate to a different culture. Not only are we the rabbits, the failed tests underground, the tethered, but we're also eating a representation of the failed tests instead of being able to eat regular food. Mm-hmm. One of the, I think, more cutting aspects of the the social commentary on privilege and specifically the, the government testing aspect of it is that none of the tethered people that we see in the film or the a doubles above were alive when the actual government tests were happening. All of the tethered who live underground are the children of those initial test subjects. And so like, not only was it terrible government testing, then they just abandoned them and the people were born into that existing system. It's not just the initial original action that has to be reconciled with. Mm -hmm. It's all of the fallout from that and the lack of of responsibility that people take for their predecessors actions. Yeah, and like how quickly we can forget those those people who embody privilege, right? So the above people in this not only did they not know it was a secret government program, right? Mhm. But like applying this to the real world for people in our country who have been privileged how quick we can forget it was the decisions of our forefathers if you identify as someone who has been privileged um our white forefathers who made decisions to subject certain people groups to a a life of subservience or a life of less so that people could could stand on their shoulders and how quickly that generational knowledge is lost when you have privilege and how at least for the tethered right that generational resentment just keeps you angry, right? Mm -hmm. Which I guess gives us a chance to speak about one of the big unknowns in this film, or like the big, I guess it's unknown until the end, and then it's made pretty clear whether Adelaide 
or her tethered are the ones that spent the time above or below. Right. Yeah, no, that's pretty explicit at the end. It's the, I mean, spoilers for those who are playing on watching the film. This is the time to pause the podcast, watch the film, and then come back. But the big spoiler and twist at the end of the film is that the Adelaide we have been following, the one who has lived with her family, is actually the tethered version who was born underground. And that during an old trip in like 1986 to the same beach, Adelaide wandered away, got lost in um, a carnival attraction, and she switched with her tethered self. The tethered self came to the surface after chaining the quote unquote real Adelaide in the underground tunnels and then took her life. And so then got to experience all all of the privileges that can't come with being an above person. Mm -hmm. And I think what's happening here that's so wild is you spend the whole movie watching the tethered come up and complete hands across America (laughs) like effort really this like huge cultish effort to kill the the above people and then join together in this new life above which I want to get to hands across America in a minute but we have this time of like you spend the whole film watching these horrific people do this and then you're faced with the fact that one of those quote unquote horrific people was the main protagonist. Mm-hmm. And so you then wonder how different are we from the tethered people? And maybe when if I was living in those circumstances, I would end up that way, too. Mm-hmm. So the the tethered character, Adelaide's double, is named Red. I think what makes it interesting is that she is both a tethered, but then also we find out that she was the one who was initially on the surface. And I think what it starts to break down is that there's not necessarily a difference between the tethered individuals. Mm-hmm. Like... They're so creepy and off-putting that we as an audience can fall very easily into the trap of not seeing them as human. But in one of the underground scenes, Red has this big long speech about, hey, we are human. We have the same hair. We have the same blood. We have the same teeth. We're, We're the same. But because of the circumstances, our worldviews are so drastically different. Yeah. And then it's also like, even easier to forget that the Adelaide that we have has been so passing as an above person mm-hmm. did not know how to speak until she was like eight years old and then was very, very good at blending in after that. Yep. And, and this is, I think, what makes Jordan Peele as a comedian so good at horror because timing, it's so pertinent in making a horror film. And so we get that on the nose scene where they're all sitting down across from each other and Gabe is just going, Gabe is like this embodiment of like keeping up with the Joneses, right? And Mm -hmm. this like American dream that they've made. And he's like, here's my money. Like, I'll give you whatever we need. Drive me to an ATM. And then when he realizes he's exhausted all of his options, he's like, who are you? And Adelaide goes, they're us. Well, I think her son, Jason, says it. Oh, right. Jason. You're right. Thanks, Lauren. And I think he says that before. I think the when he asks, who are you? I'm pretty sure Red's answer is, we're Americans. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and so it, this kind of begs this anti-racist question now for our listeners and for anyone who's going to either um, just engage with this on their own 
or come to our discussion coming up in a couple weeks here. When you're walking on the street and you experience a people group other than you, whether that's a racial group or someone in a different socioeconomic class, of course, you're making a judgment just by looking at someone. What are you seeing when you look across the street? Are you seeing someone that shares a common humanity with you? Or are there some preconceived notions like baked into who you are? And I can say this about myself. I have this when I look at someone from a different racial group as a white person, like I have these baked in racisms, right, that will speak up in especially my worst moments when I'm walking down the street and I experience someone different from me. And so as we get ready for this session together, or as you reflect on this film, no matter how wild and crazy the film is, it still has something to speak to us about the way that we move about spaces, the way that we experience our fellow Americans, right? <laughs> and even even from a horror standpoint, this has something to teach us about our anti-racism journey. One of the things that kept coming up when I was watching interviews with Jordan Peele or reading articles is that people would ask him what his inspiration for the film was. And he was saying that one of the fears that he's trying to tap into is that the greatest monster is the things about yourself that you don't want to acknowledge. Mm. And that one of the scariest things is to take an honest look in the mirror. That each of the doubles and the ways that they behave and reflect their um, above world counter parts is an amplification of a trait or an attribute that is still in the original. Wow. In the lens of this conversation, what I had started to think about was if I were to look at my tether in the mirror, specifically with the concept of like racism in mind, what are the biases that I don't want to acknowledge and the way that I see others that would be reflected back at me? Hmm. And that is horrifying. Yeah, to... Give that honest look in the mirror, right? As Jordan Peele kind of invites the listener to do. Throughout the movie, we see every character look at themselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and ultimately, in horror fashion, that's met with their demise. But as viewers, we get to watch this almost as a cautionary tale, right? What are the things that we just suppress that are ultimately... Uh, have the ability to eat us alive or to keep us from becoming the people to, to go into the faith space, like to keep us from becoming the people that God wants us to be, which is people working towards the end of evils working in our lives like racism. Mm -hmm. I think that we can also take a moment to look at, I mean, from like a nerdy film standpoint, how much duality we see in this film. Oh, absolutely. And it took me not only watching it a few times, but then looking back at people who are thinking hard at this, whether it was videos or articles to see all of this duality. I mean, we're going to get back to this in a second, but you have that opening scene where Adelaide as a kid walks by the doomsday uh, religious guy. And of course, what a good way to, to depict Christianity in a film is just a guy <laughs> holding a sign from the prophets, Jeremiah eleven eleven, And we see... 1111 so many different times. Mm -hmm. Not only is it pointed to by Jason but at 1111 right before everything goes wrong, but it's seen throughout. We have the twins in, in the family. That's the friends. Mm -hmm. And of course, doppelgangers is like a duality throughout. Yeah. Even the prize that young Adelaide chooses from the carnival booth. She's like, I want number 11. 
oh my god there you go <laughs> and then like scissors right the, yes. the very thing that's made to like sever and to kill and to separate us from our tethered is like a duality it's two knives that uh, are bound together mm -hmm. one of my favorite examples of duality that it took someone else pointing it out for me to actually see it mm -hmm. was the ballet scenes where we see both the recital that adelaide above and red below are having because they mirror each other's actions uh mm -hmm. so they're doing this dance and it's from the nutcracker i believe and the song itself is called pas de deux that's also the name of the soundtrack during their big fight which has the ballet oh. imagery as well and takes the notes from i got five on it which is the reoccurring musical motif in the film mm -hmm. uh, it takes those notes puts them in more of a ballet nutcracker s arrangement as an homage to the actual piece pas de deux which means duet and is supposed to be performed with two people on stage oh but both of the adelaides are actually dancing a duet even though their audi respective audiences have no idea. Wow. And that was so like mind-blowing genius <laughs> moment. That was like, oh, I didn't even see that. It's so good. Wow. Yeah. And it takes like a culture genius to like <laughs> look at like, oh, that's the Nutcracker and like should be a duet, but they're doing it alone because of course they're going to think of every little thing like that. But like bringing it back to this space of like, there is always this like push and pull in our lives where we come from or what we've what has been ingrained in us versus the pull to like address that mm -hmm. right what is comfortable versus where we are being called to and it's almost like this film is a reminder at every step of the way we as humans we stand in this tug of war always the like hands across america feels uh, poignant in this image the the paper people who um, that you cut together, but we're always in this tug of war of trying to work towards something better and being pulled towards what might feel safe or familiar. Mm -hmm. Or even like seeing an injustice and then handling it in the way that is safest possible for yourself. Right. Where you're not actually risking anything, but it's a very symbolic gesture. And I think mm. that's a big part of why Hands Across America was such a big symbol in the film. Yes, right. This is a good time to bring up Hands Across America. It was this effort, right, to end hunger in America. So we're going to donate food. If I'm if I'm correct, Lauren, you might correct well, me. I don't know. I was not around in the 1980s. <laughs> okay, I mean, well, neither were you, but... <laughs> right, so we can date ourselves to both 90s kids. Um, oh, no, I was 2000. I was born... Oh, I, was, I was not alive in the 90s even. Well, there you have it for our listeners. We're, we're young folk here. Um, but <laughs> as I understand in my research, Hands Across America was just like one of those viral, oh, I can't say viral because of the internet, right? But it was one of these like efforts that went across the entire United States to donate food, to donate money, to end hunger in the United States. And if any of you have been paying attention to the hunger needs of people in our country, it did not work, right? Hands Across America did not end hunger. And much like a lot of those other popular fads, I'm thinking of like ALS Ice Bucket Challenge or something like that, where we step up to do something, right? A, a craze comes along in, in the anti-racist sphere, George Floyd or the death of Breonna Taylor comes along. 
everyone kicks into action for a little bit. Changes their Facebook photo to a black square. Exactly. And then a few months later, they drop out of their book clubs or they stop going to protests or something like that. And I'm not going to sit here from my microphone and say that I am not the same or that I haven't struggled with those exact same issues. But Hands Across America is this time immemorial example of a fad for justice that allows people who have privilege or embody a space of privilege to step up for a performative moment and do something that is meaningful, but then feel like, check, I've done that and I can get on to my next thing. Mm -hmm. In that way, it's a little bit sinister that this is the symbolic gesture that the tethered are trying to do. Their goal at the end of the film is to complete hands across America. And they even like take it a step further. And it's like, even if it's like, in order to keep the chain maintained, we have to go over a mountain or like under a lake, or this variety of things, they actually succeed in making the symbol in a way that was not even possible in the 80s for humans. Right. Like what was once this symbolic thing where, hey, we're gonna get together and hold hands across the nation for hunger like didn't necessarily precipitate, made some money for for the organizers at the top and did a little bit of good. (laughs) The tether take it seriously. And Mm -hmm. they're like, we're we're going to do this, what they perceive as justice work, right? We're going to actually unite ourselves as people across the country. And of course, right, it's that horror twist of sinister. We're going to kill people about it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's also significant that it's Red. Red is the one who really gets all of the tethered mobilized, which is interesting because Red was not born as a tethered. So it's this outside force. She says that the tethered could like tell that she wasn't exactly like them, but they still rallied behind her as a leader. She got this massive thing organized and at the core of it is is the pop cultural references that she saw as a child and is now trying to emulate. So Hands Across America was a TV commercial that she saw right before going to the carnival. It's a child's idea of what a unified America looks like. Right. And also like the red jumpsuits are a reference to the Michael Jackson thriller t-shirt that she gets at the carnival. Even like the one leather glove is a reference to like Michael Jackson's one glove. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very childlike understanding of unity but it has this really twisted sense of justice also attached to it. Yeah. So uh, listeners, like as you reflect on this movie or as you prepare to come to the Anti-Racist Film Club Zoom meeting, think about this. Maybe if you are involved in a church space, if you're involved in a faith space, or if you have been involved in any, I mean, of course, we've all been involved in institutions that have done these kind of things. Like, the government, many of us are citizens of a government that like try efforts that appear altruistic, right? When are times that are institutions or we have participated in events that like help in some ways, but then also when we look back at them, in fact, like didn't make the impact that we thought they were going to make. And they made everyone feel good for a little bit of time until we had forgotten about the injustice happening there. It's like donating food is not bad ever. It It's not a bad thing to do. If you participated in Hands Across America, that that's good. You, you mm-hmm. were doing a very good thing. It's the attitude and the commercialization that was around it. And then it 
not having a lasting impact on the systemic problems it was trying to address or at least paying lip service to, that's the problem. It's not bad if you do participate in performative actions like donating or doing like a hunger walk or going to protests and stuff. It's, It's bad if you're not following through or trying to keep up with it or making it a difference in your behaviors or internalizing the messages that you're learning from these experiences. If you're only doing it as a performance, that's when it has a negative effect on the communities that you're participating in. Right. And and we get into this nuance here of like that balance between performance and authenticity in your work. Mm-hmm. And I'm guilty of this through and through, right? Being a part of a community, a faith community helps me in this way because I get to see other people at least trying to get along, you know, and they're and they're making mistakes and they're messing up there, but together, right? There's this piece of like communal accountability and I think that's what is really captivating about these like cultural moments, right? Think three years ago when um, a lot of people in this country had a racial reckoning and realized that racism still has such a claim on all of our hearts. It moved so many people. And, And Lauren is really right to point this out, right? Participating in those moments of immense coming together of like a community to like work on something is great. But then we have to ask ourselves that question, what are we doing to plug in and continue that work? Mm-hmm. What's going to give staying power to our work of anti-racism or our justice work, period? I mean, not even to be even more meta here, this very club was started in response to the same three years ago cultural zeitgeist of we need to do more. And it's still going, but are we necessarily really internalizing? Are we taking the next steps or are we still at the starting phase? Oof. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> let's look in the mirror. What are the dark parts of ourselves that we don't want to address? You're so right in that. And I don't know if we can answer that question, especially not the two of us. Like, oh, oh just yeah, definitely. Like a portion of like what anti-racist film club is, but like, it's a good question to ask of the people who are participating you listener in the podcast or you folks in the zoom is there a different step is there another step that um, makes sense for this group is there an iteration right now right we have a system in place for reviewing art and for looking in the mirror and asking ourselves and each other these questions but is there another step right is there a sense of how we can continue this momentum maybe there's a way to pivot that makes sense for um for our community i don't know Mm -hmm. pivoting back a little bit uh, this is this is getting off of the topic but uh back treading a little bit in the conversation you mentioned the jeremiah 11 11 passage that is reoccurring throughout the first half of the film i was not familiar with that passage but being a pastor i would imagine that you are Yes, I am. And I'm going to pull it up here. So I'm sorry if you hear me typing just so I can (laughs) read it for everyone real quick. It's Um, just immersive sound effects. This is production quality. (laughs) Exactly. Lauren is referring to the the man who holds the sign, Jeremiah 1111, in the flashback scene or the starting scene when Adelaide is young. And then it's actually really interesting because the first person that's killed by their tether is the Jeremiah 1111 prophet figure, mm-hmm. the guy who's 
holding the sign. And then Jason sees that quote unquote prophets tether starting the hands across America. The the blood is dripping on that, that beach scene. Mm -hmm. And so that's like the first one. So I think it's really interesting, like looking back into what's happening in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 11, 11 reads, therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And through they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. Already, that's just like a scary Bible <laughs> passage. Yeah, terrifying. Yeah, but it it's important just to like name that in a lot of our prophets and the prophetic scriptures, this is a time of meaning making when the Israelites are being deposed, they're being put into diaspora, uh, conquered, and then um, put into kind of a colonial system where they are the subjugated, they are the underprivileged, they're the sent away people. And so Jeremiah, trying to make meaning of all of this, points to the injustices that are happening within the Israelites' lives, and for 20 years, preaches a message of repent, turn around, stop participating in these injustices or else. And then, of course, 1111 comes as a part of this discourse that is like, welp, <laughs> God's wrath is coming. And it, and it does. We have like an accusation of leaders being corrupt. There was talk of like we would go to uh, temple services and we would make our sacrifices. But then just outside the temple, we would sacrifice to a different deity using child sacrifices. Like there was a lot going on at the time. And it's really interesting to look at the parallels happening, meta parallels, I'm going to say. I don't, I don't think that we're um, in mass child sacrificing, right? Oh, probably not. I would hope so. <laughs> That's a different horror movie. Right, exactly. If God wants for us to be one with God and moving on towards unity in our community, but we have corrupt leaders and we are privileging some while, while subjugating others, while we're oppressing people and standing on their shoulders, profiting from their labor or keeping people generationally poor, that is something to cry out about. That is something that we would hope there would be some sort of justice for this. Mm -hmm. And I know that like our sense of justice in the 21st century involves a lot less violence than the, the sense of justice that the biblical authors had. But just to just to name, right? This is something that we should be yelling out about. Yeah. There's at least one other thing that I noticed in the film that I, I want to know if you picked up on. It's very like subtle in the background. Yeah. But the mere maze, the carnival attraction that young Adelaide wanders into in the 80s is the the same attraction as the one that Jason is drawn to and then is eventually the tunnel that adult Adelaide enters the underground tunnels where the tethered live at the end of the film. Right. The attraction is pretty much the same, but it had a significant rebranding on the outside. <laughs> yes, I do remember that. I think it was the um it was the vision quest, right? It was like a shaman vision quest in the 80s. And then right. in 2019, it was Merlin's Enchanted Forest. Right. Yeah. This racism in itself of reducing uh, a trope, right? 
oh, like we're going to profit off of this idea of going on a vision quest, right? Mm -hmm. That's um, culturally not for like everybody, right? It definitely starts to like, well, I I think it even goes beyond starting to uh, dip into the area of cultural appropriation Mm -hmm. and making a mockery of traditions that are not your own. Yeah, like it's a funny moment of like, obvious cultural appropriation right like this is taking advantage as you said of someone's culture especially like an oppressed people's culture to to profit off of that one other piece regarding the mirror maze that i think is really interesting is that when adelaide goes through the mirror maze at the end of the film she comes to the downwards moving escalator Mm -hmm. and there were no locked doors between the entrance to the mirror maze and the location of the experiments where all of those people were. Mm-hmm. And what an amazing motif for the false idea of the American dream when oppressed people are kept in a space or kept to um, a way of being. And the only thing that keeps them from going up into the world is a downward moving escalator. It's not any locked doors, but it's a lot of that like internalized, this is where I belong. Mm -hmm. It's not hard to, in theory, (laughs) I should say, it's not hard in theory to go up a downwards moving escalator. It does take work though. But it takes work and you're taught we don't go up these, Mm -hmm. right? So it's that internalized racism piece there of we don't do that or like that's not acceptable to do that. And how powerful the mind is in those scenarios. On the other side of that coin is how easy it is to actually fall down a downward moving escalator. It's, it's so much harder to get back out. And that made me think of more recently, I've been hearing concepts about um, the disability communities and how Mm -hmm. at any given time, anyone can join the marginalized community of having a disability. Mm. It's not something that everyone is born marked by, but it's still stigmatized in a way that is incredibly unfair. Yeah. And like the images within that community and the change of the symbols Mm -hmm. in attempt to create equity, right? For generations, the symbol of someone with a disability was a relaxed person in a wheelchair and recently in the past probably half a decade we've had that shift of that symbol to someone actively pushing themselves in a wheelchair which shows the importance of our symbols Mm -hmm. when it comes to a marginalized group of people right if someone who's relaxed in their wheelchair needs to be moved by someone else Mm-hmm. And someone who is actively pushing forward, right? Is That's someone who is empowered. Yeah, there's definitely lots of intersections between the depictions of marginalization in this film and the concept of privilege in all of its multifaceted sinisterness. Yeah, definitely an aspect of real life horror that we need to address in all of our own lives. Is there anything else that you want to talk about in the film Us right now on the podcast because we are just about hitting the time when we usually wrap up. So as you prepare for coming into the Anti-Racist Film Club space or 
maybe as you're prayerfully watching this movie, I, I want to uh, challenge you to prayerfully watch a <laughs> horror movie, right? Um, thinking about the ways that we can look in the mirror, right? And uh, come face to face with the horrors of some of our our own lives and the things that are ingrained into us. But then also um, like name the injustice and the horrors in our communities and sustain movements of justice in our communities, whether that's in your faith space or in your own communities beyond just like the zeitgeist of what is happening at the time, right? How do we not just get consumed by a moment, a cultural moment, but then continue on through that? And hopefully that's together. Yeah. All right. Thank you for listening to the Anti-Racist Film Club podcast. If you haven't seen us, it looks like it's only currently available to stream with a Peacock subscription of all things, but it can be rented through Amazon Prime or Apple TV+. To learn more about the Anti-Racist Film Club itself, visit fumcoley.org or follow the links in our description below. This is a monthly podcast, so be sure to follow us on whatever platform you're currently listening to, such as Spotify, Amazon, or Apple Music, so you don't miss our next upload. Usually these ad reads uh, are not not even ad reads, but these uh, social media plugs feel less sinister. But this is a very um, uh, commercially loaded episode topic. <laughs> uh, and remember that the number one way that you can support this podcast is by sharing it with your friends or your evil tethered twins. I'm pretty sure they like podcasts too. <laughs> but before we sign off, I just want to thank you, Pastor Kellen, for leading our conversation today. Hey, it was my pleasure, and I hope that you all at home will accept my failings and, and join me along in this, this process. <laughs> and for everyone who tuned in, thanks for listening.